There is no reforming the schools. The options are survival or escape. But this realization actually marks the beginning of a new and fulfilling educational journey. For both students and parents. Welcome to the School Sucks Project. Our mission is to provide clarity, support, and empowerment to parents who are concerned and frustrated with the content and culture of the public schools. We achieve this mission through the creation of educational and entertaining media and the development of supportive communities. Continuously building a more detailed picture of what genuine self-directed education can look like. We are determined to pursue this mission because we understand the dangers of indoctrination, toxic school culture, and short-sighted education policies. And we deeply value intrinsically motivated learning, autonomy, and choice in education. And please remember the three important facts we first tried to share when we started in 2009. The schools will not improve. Higher education will not improve. The political conversation about these institutions will not improve. Only we can improve. So let's begin. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the first episode in the Essential School Sucks collection. You only got 49 to go after this one. Now, if you haven't heard the very, very first installment, which was just called An Introduction to the Essential School Sucks, I would refer you back to that if you just want the big picture of what we're doing here. But the way this is going to work is the first 10 episodes deal with the problems, the real problems of public schooling and higher education, the history, the politics, the philosophy behind it. It's a bit disturbing, even though today's audio ultimately is going to be more of an inspirational story. Episodes 10 through 20 in this collection will be a deep dive into educational alternatives. After that, we'll do a 10 or so episode section on the principles of critical thinking and self-directed learning. After that, ooh, certainly not taught in school, topics in personal development, self-knowledge, productivity and organization, communication and negotiation, and then finally, and definitely not taught in public school or really higher education at this point, information and media literacy. And that will take us well into the summer, maybe all the way through the summer. In fact, let me know what works best for you as this goes on. An episode every day or an episode every other day, let's say. I'm perfectly happy with the every other day arrangement if you find that pace to be more manageable. Today we start with one of the most important stories that I have to tell. It is about a man named John Taylor Gatto. I don't want to spoil too much of the story, but this was uh, a man who, shortly after winning the New York State Teacher of the Year Award, publicly resigned in an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, pointing out everything that he thought was wrong with school 30 years ago. And it was around that time that he started releasing a body of written work that in many ways became the foundation of the School Sucks Project. A lot of the controversies in school politics that might have brought you to me, that might have brought you to the School Sucks Podcast or inspired your quest for answers and alternatives, like what's happening in Florida, these things are flashes in the pan compared to the totality of the school problem. And I feel there is a great importance in understanding where the schools came from, not just historically or geographically, but also philosophically. So we understand this current moment, and we also know where they are going. 
After John resigned, he dedicated himself to uncovering what he called the underground history of American education. Even though he's not exactly talking about education, he's talking about schooling. You will frequently hear me make that distinction in these coming shows. John died in 2018 after almost 30 years of dedicating himself to having these crucial conversations about the problems of institutional schooling and the emerging alternatives. And since this is the School Sucks Project, and you might be new, there's a lot of my story in this audio as well. How I woke up to many of the realities of school, in large part thanks to John, and transitioned from the world of schooling to what I do now, which I sincerely believe is much more educational than anything I ever did in a classroom. Now, I do understand many of you might have come here because you're looking specifically for discussions of alternatives. You're free to check back in a couple of weeks. At that time, that's what we'll be covering in this Essential School Suck series. But I also think the next 45 minutes offers an opportunity to develop a better understanding of the distinction between school and purposeful, self-directed education. So if you don't hear anything in the first 10 minutes that you think is relevant to the school conversation of the current moment, or of the social, cultural, political conversation of the current moment, or if you don't hear anything that's just outright startling, feel free to move on to the next one. But this episode and the nine that will follow on the real problems of public schooling are a really, really important foundation. And I believe the more we know about the problems, the more motivated we're going to be when it comes to solutions. Last thing before we start, the School Sucks Project has no sponsors. You might listen to a lot of other podcasts where they cut into the middle of the show for an ad about socks or an ad about uh, underwear. I'm going to assume that if you're living your best life, you already have those things on. We are and have always been a listener-supported operation, and we make tons of additional educational and entertaining media available to people who contribute on a monthly basis. We do have a couple of affiliate partners, but I will tell you more about all of that at the very end of the show if you're interested. All right, here is The Essential School Sucks, Episode 1, The Teacher Who Stood Up and Spoke Out, originally released November 1st, 2018, as School Sucks, Episode 584, entitled Thank You, John Taylor Gatto, but now available only right here. And remember, like I said, give it 10 minutes. If you don't hear anything that is relevant to right now, educationally, culturally, politically, if you don't hear anything that's like disturbing and thought-provoking, feel free to move on to the next one. I will tell you this. If you're one of those people who used to like the History Channel when everything was Hitler this and the Nazis that, oh boy, you're going to love the history of public school. I won't say any more. Here we go. School was intended on this continent to be, as it had been in northern Germany, a fifth column into the burgeoning libertarian condition where disenfranchised and oppressed groups were clamoring for some kind of seat at the bargaining table. School was to be a surgical incision 
into which the class-based management theories of England were to be inserted to interdict the liberty traditions. England's multi-layered social class is simply a modern-day representation of Julius Caesar's advice that when you're overwhelmed by the enemy, you divide them and conquer them that way by setting them against each other. The method was to be by infiltration into the minds of children out of sight of their parents. The well-read here won't, won't be shocked. Theorists from Plato to Rousseau to Frederick of Prussia knew and taught explicitly that if children could be kept childish beyond its term in nature, if they could be cloistered in a society of children without any real responsibility except obedience, if their inner lives could be attenuated by removing the insights of history, literature, philosophy, economics, religion, if the imminence of death and the certainty of pain and loss can be removed from daily consciousness, if the profound reflections on one's own death could be replaced with the trivializing emotions of greed, envy, jealousy, and fear, young people would grow older, but they would never grow up, and a great enduring problem of supervision would be solved. For who can argue against the truth that childish and childlike people are far easier to manage than critically trained, self-reliant ones? And now you're ready to hear the six purposes of modern schooling taken directly from Dr. Inglis's book. The first function of schooling is adjustive. Schools are to establish fixed habits of reaction to authority. That's fixed habits of reaction. Notice that this precludes critical judgment completely. Notice, too, that requiring obedience to stupid orders is a much better test of function one than following sensible orders ever could be. You don't know whether people are reflexively obedient unless they'll march right off the cliff. Second is the diagnostic function. School is to determine each student's proper social role logging the evidence mathematically and anecdotally on cumulative records. You probably thought that, that the kid or the parents or neighbors or the region circumstances, no, the school is to determine your proper social role and they're to fix you in that role mathematically on their cumulative records. Next comes the sorting function. School sorts children by training individuals only so far as their likely destination in the social machine, not one step beyond. Keep in mind, you're not listening to John Gatto. You're listening to the man for whom the honor lecture in education at Harvard is named. The fourth function is conformity. As much as possible, Kids are to be made alike. Whatever the background they come from, they're to be made alike. This is not done from any passion 
for egalitarian ideals, but so that their future behavior will be mathematically predictable in service to market research and government research. Next comes the hygienic function. This one's my favorite. This has nothing to do with individual health, but it has a lot to do with the health of the race, at least as Inglis or Darwin or his first cousin Galton saw it. Hygiene is a polite way of saying that school is expected to accelerate natural selection by tagging the unfit so clearly that's what all those little humiliations from first grade on that's what all the posted list of ranked grades are about so clearly that the unfit will drop from the reproduction sweepstakes either in despair or because their likely mates will have accepted the school's judgment of them as terminally inferior and last, last comes a fancy Latin word, the propiedutic function. That's a fancy word meaning that a small fraction of lucky kids will quietly be taught how to take over management of this continuing project. Guardians of a population deliberately dumbed down and rendered childlike in order that government and economic life can be managed with a minimum of hassle. It's that low-down, nitty-gritty, common purpose. Not Marx's grand warfare between classes and greedy uh, uh, captains of industry. It's simply so that management will have a minimum of hassles. I could say where we're heading based on an engineer's read of where we are now, and it's not pleasant. On the other hand, I have noticed over the course of what's now a long life, I have noticed that no system of management in human history, no matter how dominant or how insightful about controlling other people has managed to survive. Every single one of them disintegrates. How many teachers reluctantly acknowledge the failure of mass compulsory schooling? How many become disheartened but then relegate themselves to a quiet conformity? How many hunt for villains but simply wind up sniveling behind the closed doors of the teacher's lounge, choosing to blame students and parents? If you've ever worked in or around the public schools, or even if you've simply endured the 15,000 hours as a student, you're likely able to form some rough estimates for these questions. Yet how powerful is the voice of a teacher with the conviction to take action and speak out? In 1991, at the dawn of the information age, John Taylor Gatto was named New York State Teacher of the Year. And within months of receiving that recognition, he resigned, quite publicly, in the op-ed section of the Wall Street Journal. 
At this time, John was in his mid-50s. He had a family, he had little savings, and he resided on the notoriously not-affordable island of Manhattan. It was a bold move to say the least, but it marked the beginning of a beautiful new career in education. His public resignation letter, titled I Quit, I Think, identified the box in which schooling had been perpetually stuck and then outlined his reasons for stepping out of that box after 30 often trying but ultimately successful years. It was a particularly noteworthy set of revelations from a voice that spoke from deep inside the system. In addition to receiving the state's highest recognition for an educator, John was a three-decade veteran and a graduate of the prestigious Columbia Teachers College. Fortunately for us, he managed to escape Columbia with his respect for humanity still intact. A little research on some of the figures and ideas that emerge from Columbia Teachers College reveals that such a survival is a feat in itself. And that respect for humanity was present throughout John's letter as he expressed his concerns about a system that consistently harmed children by teaching them to merely adjust and conform to the corrupt and confused world that existed beyond the school walls. He recounted his role as a servant of the religious idea that schools perpetuate, that human genius, talent, and personal power are all incredibly scarce. Take a moment to ponder how such an idea might impact a national pedagogy. And there was no happy ending. According to John, there would be no meaningful revolution or even reform. But intense school reform debate had raged through the previous decade, some of it instigated by the Reagan administration's investigation into eliminating the Federal Department of Education. So by 1991, many Wall Street Journal readers must have been asking themselves, with so many apparent failures, why is there so little change? John continued his examination of what he boldly referred to as government school by confronting readers with a brief chronicle of what he called the most radical adventure in human history, an adventure ultimately resulting in a system tailored to maintain equilibrium for the powerful interests it had come to benefit. Readers then faced the troubling conclusion that the existing structure had not been set up, maintained, or expanded with the thoughtful, caring, or courageous educator in mind. Even if they managed to overlook the moral questions John had raised about schooling, they still had to accept the inference that resigning was preferable to enduring the frustration and disgust that surely would have followed any further attempts at disruption or reform. The title, I quit, period, I think, is easily interpreted as I quit because I think, which is a clever play on words. But don't all educators think? Don't we all engage in evaluation, ask questions about what we see, and contemplate a better path? Indeed. So why don't more of us speak or act? John provided the answer to the last question throughout the op-ed. After surviving 12 years inside the schools he described, too many of us are left feeling like we're incapable of bold and meaningful action. We've been subjected to subtle but relentless lessons in deference to authority, dependence, conformity, and obedience— Lessons that aggregate into an intellectual and moral apathy. As the finished products of this schooling process, we've gone on to staff the professions, social services, law enforcement, the corporate world, and of course, the schools themselves. Most of us who choose to teach are quite comfortable commiserating with co-workers about the burdens of our jobs, but few will confront our discomforts about the nature and purpose of our work. 
We have been trained to simply go along to get along, consequently making anyone who doesn't acquiesce appear dangerously maladjusted by comparison. We are capable of identifying problems and desiring solutions, but it's usually a quiet and personal process, often interrupted and terminated by denial or rationalization. We resign ourselves to working or surviving within the system. Thus, the schools are a world of quiet suffering for children and adults alike. Through demoralizing training and experience, most teachers become safe and manageable, and we work, often unconsciously, to render our students in a similar fashion. Fortunately, Mr. Gatto would prove to be an exception, and he inspired many others to cut their own divergent paths. As a once-aspiring public school teacher, I wish I could have benefited from John's hard-won wisdom sooner. Unfortunately, I missed my first opportunity. My initial encounter with his written work occurred purely by accident about 14 years ago. As a progressive-minded graduate student at a teacher's college in western Massachusetts, I found myself struggling one evening through the beginning stages of a research project. I forget the exact keywords I entered into AskJeeves.com, but I do recall one of the results seemingly jumped off the screen at me. The title of the entry, Schools Are Dumbing Us Down. Hey, I went to school, I said to myself, also recognizing that I didn't feel incredibly smart at that moment, so I clicked. As the page slowly opened, I hastily scanned it for keywords, quickly realizing why Mr. Gatto's insights were certainly not going to appear anywhere in the required reading for my master's degree in education. The webpage provided information about a book, Dumbing Us Down, The Hidden Curriculum of Compulsory Schooling which John had published the year after his resignation. I can't recall most of the details, but I still remember the feeling they created. Discomfort. Having read the book years later, I know that my idealistic young mind was rattled by his arguments. Schools transform us from curious, creative, confident children into a different, dependent, confused, approval-addicted young adults. A decade-long journey from energetic optimism to frustrated resignation. After a couple of disquieting minutes of skimming and scanning, I hastily concluded that this radical and almost incomprehensible webpage wasn't helpful, so I closed the tab and moved along. It was a chance encounter, and one I wish I had greeted with more time, curiosity, contextual knowledge, and critical thinking. But, like I said, I was a progressive-minded college student. What I didn't realize was that this brief encounter with John's iconoclastic message was the arming of a kind of time bomb in my mind. For years, that bomb ticked away in close proximity to my ideological comfort zone. All my visions about society's need for benevolent overseers, my dreams of the reforms those forward-looking managers could manifest, and my enthusiasm for earning my way into the machinery of 21st century public schooling. In the end, graduate school taught me almost nothing. Experience taught me a lot. Over the next four years, I taught in two semi-private institutions in Vermont, then moved on to work as a public school enforcement agent in the greater Boston area. My official job title was tutor, but my job function was to extend the corrosive school attitudes beyond the final afternoon bell and into the home. I'd spend my evenings and weekends traveling from the home of one well-off, overachieving high school student to another, my very presence implying the message, I am here because something is wrong with you. I had a terrible revelation during this process, that I despised schooling. 
I'd become accustomed to being greeted at the door by melancholy, stressed, warm faces. I had become aware that the most rewarding and meaningful connected moments with students occurred when we had strayed away from the school-dictated task at hand. I often found myself biting my tongue with students when they complained about their mundane assignments, uninspiring teachers, and toxic school environments. The regularity of those unrewarding experiences left me questioning the nature of my work, and my frustrations would soon return me to that radical but increasingly intriguing dumbing-down argument I had accidentally encountered years earlier. The time bomb continued to tick. In 2007, in the midst of my independent search for answers to the school problem, the bomb exploded. I was sitting in a public library waiting for a student, reading an article called Against School by John Taylor Gatto. After years of field experience, my second encounter with his writing came with more appreciation and understanding. The first two sentences of the fifth paragraph produced a final shift in my thinking that lasts to this moment. Quote, do we really need school? I don't mean education, just for schooling, unquote. Now, I had always assumed those were synonyms. But if schooling is not education, which one had I been doing? The unfortunate answer was unavoidable. I realized I never felt that school was educational. Both my experience as a student and feedback from students as a teacher had proven this to me. John followed up this provocative question with a rapid-fire roll call of accomplished figures that had never spent a day in compulsory government school. Unschooled, perhaps, but not uneducated, he explained. My confusion turned to understanding. I sped through the remainder of the article. John swiftly moved beyond the distinction between schooling and education to present a trail of breadcrumbs that led me away from notions of a nebulous dumbing-down suspicion and towards the understanding of a series of very real, very detailed plans. Before I finished the article, I accepted that mass public school was no failure. It was perhaps the most successful government program that had ever existed. So what is school really? What is its actual purpose? The short answer might sound like a bizarre conspiracy theory spun by right-wing radical types. Conspiracy theory is such a convenient means of dismissal for a complacent mind, especially when confronted with the seemingly incomprehensible. After all, how could people like us possibly grasp the elaborate agendas and designs behind mass compulsion schooling? We're not 19th century Prussian aristocrats looking to expand our kingdom. We've never looked out at the world from the ivory towers of academia. We've probably never even dabbled in social engineering or eugenics. But when you add motive, historical context, and primary sources, that conspiracy theory rapidly becomes the only historical narrative that makes any sense at all. These additions represent one of John's greatest contributions as a writer. Although Against School is a brief 3,500 words, it lays out many of the essential who's, what's, where's, why's, and when's of public school's dark and largely unknown history. I remember sitting frozen in my seat, reading his interpretation of a 1918 book that outlined the six essential functions secondary school would deliver into the future. Training in reflexive obedience, training in conformity, assignment of a social role, assignment of labels and stations, diminishment, and indoctrination. 
I contemplated these nefarious designs on the minds of youth, fully aware that, 89 years later, I was sitting in a public library planning to meet three secondary school students that afternoon. All three struggled with school due to an apparent lack of ambition. All three believed that college was the only way to move their lives forward, and two of these students had been diagnosed with and medicated for ADHD. At this point, I had already spent a couple of years making a mental collage of school problems. Now, thanks to John and a series of philosophical influences, I began to form a coherent mind map. Through my experiences with John's writing, I was able to fully grasp that religious idea that schools perpetuate. As a result of that perceived scarcity of human genius, talent, and personal power, American schooling hadn't been developed to encourage children to self-direct. It instead prepared children to accept lifelong management and supervision. It was a revelation that fit perfectly within my understanding of the history of our civilization. As an ongoing story of a small group of people controlling a large group of people, by fear, fraud, or force, that control achieved by keeping most of the large group ignorant and dependent on the leadership of the smaller group. Actual religion had proven to be a successful means of management for thousands of years, but eventually it failed to deliver results, and science had to take over. John's written works are relentless in the teaching of this lesson with one historical example after another, and once this has been made explicit, it's impossible to look away. The aforementioned breadcrumb trail might eventually lead the curious mind to another book, The Underground History of American Education, a book that is continuously proven to be the most valuable resource in my new educational career. A friend gave me a copy of The Underground History of American Education in 2009 after I had gained some recognition for my anti-school pro-education podcast and website. After a quick skim, I prioritized the projection of John's work to a new audience. And fortunately, I would not be alone in this continued pursuit. Just two years later, John was featured in the Tragedy and Hope documentary called The Ultimate History Lesson, A Weekend with John Taylor Gatto. It's a kind of living, breathing version of the underground history book. The presentation stretches five hours, strangely a seemingly ideal length, and features a series of clever questions that invite a stream of consciousness but highly educational dialogue. Many others have joined in, and the work we do to spread John's message is both an act of appreciation and the payment of a debt. We raise awareness through media and reach new audiences because we can stand on his shoulders. During one segment in the Ultimate History Lesson, John recounts his research into two significant yet enigmatic public school pioneers at Harvard University, Alexander Inglis and James Bryant Conant. He describes an arduous process of gathering information about something called the Inglis Lecture as a series of phone calls, inquisitive but friendly letters, and extensive exercises in patience. Add this to his seemingly endless hours spent combing through dry, disconnected, yet self-congratulatory writing penned by progressive academics in the early 20th century. Books and essays never intended for an audience beyond the responsible men with the self-assigned task of scientifically managing the rest of us. John not only uncovers their veiled agendas, but he also manages to make their bland and unbearable writing into a form of entertainment for the rest of us. 
His investment of years of inquiry, analysis, and argumentation now results in my ability to find the answers to many of my esoteric school history questions in 15 minutes or less. Ideology translates to pedagogy. Imagined mass dumbness and helplessness at the beginning of the 20th century had arguably become a self-fulfilling prophecy by the beginning of the 21st century. What John ultimately uncovered and elucidated was what many of us had suspected since 7th or 8th grade. The work we do in schools isn't meaningful, purposeful, intrinsically motivated action. It takes us away from ourselves while stifling our innate curiosity and our desire for independence. In the end, we are rendered safe and predictable, ready to be led, but never to truly assume command of ourselves. This new knowledge about schooling might leave many of us with a very pertinent question. What would real education look like? For the answer, we can start by moving from John Taylor Gatto, the school historian, to John Taylor Gatto, the educator. YouTube offers us a great introduction where you'll find a beautiful local television feature story from 25 years ago called Classrooms of the Heart. The piece intersperses classroom and after-school footage between interviews with John and his students. For me, it was somewhat surreal to watch these interactions, already knowing much of John's story. His coming resignation becomes increasingly inevitable as the video progresses. In I Quit, I Think, John had suggested that the creation of the most meaningful educational experiences would often require his ignoring school rules, limitations, and procedures. In this 27-minute video, you'll see exactly what he meant. Longtime eighth grade teacher John Gatto is outside the classroom today because that's where he'd rather be. It's where he says the best teaching takes place. Right now, he's preparing Francisco for a day of apprenticeship. So keep your eyes and ears open. Lend him a willing pair of hands. Let him see that uh, you know, you're ready to work in exchange for, for what he's going to teach you. But ask questions, okay? Gatto apprentices students to professionals regularly because he says first-hand experience is the only way a student can really learn. That was about programming. Mr. Glasson's making coverages. Someone just called on the intercom. Okay, now, did you hear that buzz? The first three lines on the left are outside calls for the school numbers, but those are picked up by the secretary. The last line is called the principal's private line. Now, that's really big shot, right? They don't really know what the world of work is, and I don't think we've ever had a generation so remote and alienated from making the world work. I apprentice them to people who are doing real things, and I tell the people, don't be nice to the kid. Tell the kid how you think. Now, how many of you ever been in an 18-wheeler or a big tractor-trailer truck? Anyone? You have? Ron Hitchon, owner of a trucking company in Secaucus, New Jersey, has four apprentices from Mr. Gatto's class today. Some of our customers that we ship to are Sears Roebuck. Have you ever heard of Sears? Yeah. How about uh, Wallet? This is the second year Hitchon has taken John Gatto's apprentices. And you're going to go down to the port in Elizabeth, New Jersey, and see how we pick up merchandise to ship to other parts of the country. John asked me if I would get interested in his concepts of education and uh, I agree with them. I think they're sound. I think that uh, the best way to learn 
is to have these life experiences. And the more you have, and the more constructive ones you have, uh, the better able you'll be able to become an independent person in society. What are you going to do when you get older? Are Got you? a law school. All right, good for you. How about you, Stanley? Air Force pilot. An Air Force pilot? That's, that's good. Of course they need the basics. We all need them. And the basics are generally compressed into reading, writing, and arithmetic. They need to test the basics on reality. They can't test the basics in, in endless abstraction, in endless blackboard work. We're told at the beginning that this man is a teacher in a public school, but the events and conversations that follow don't seem consistent with that setting. Middle school students are spoken to like self-respecting professionals, not like children. There are no tests. There are no traditional homework assignments. There are no rows of desks. Most of John's interactions with students don't even take place in a classroom. Furthermore, he invites students to ponder what it means to be self-teachers and to question all that surrounds them, including school itself. Twenty years later in the Ultimate History Lesson, Richard Grove begins Hour 5 of the interview with a tongue-in-cheek question. We've all heard about the hard way to learn, John. Is there an easy way to learn? If you begin and understand yourself thoroughly and you have a lot of raw experience, I think natural powers are released. And I do believe that all the graceful, easy learning comes from people who are comfortable inside their own skin because they understand. And, and people who've had a lot of early experience. And I operated on those principles, even though it was illegal in a public school setting. I set aside one full day a week. I, I won't get into the politics of how this was pulled off, but it was never easy, where the kids could follow their own instincts anywhere in New York City they wanted to go, one full day a week where I took them on group projects, different parts of the five boroughs in New York City that would group projects that would end up with a tangible goal, such as testing, uh, I remember uh, this one might uh, uh, amuse your the people watching this. Uh, the New York Times announced on the front page about three weeks before the Ed Koch, Dave Dinkins election of, let me say 1980, somewhere around there, that Dinkins was hopelessly behind by 17 points. And I had a black kid in the class come up and ask me why the city was so prejudiced. And I said, why do you say that? And he said, well, look at this. And I said, well, why do you believe that's true? Maybe that's to get you not to go and vote. I don't know, I said, but I do know that it says here in small print that they only interviewed 300 people. <laughs> There's 8 million of us. I said, 
There's 120 people in my five classes. If each one of you do 20 interviews, and we do it according to the, the way you get a random distribution, and that, that's easy enough to find out, well, we can have many times larger sample than, so that happened. We gathered the data, we processed it, and we discovered about a week after the time study, hopefully behind, that he actually was ahead by a fraction of one point. That's quite a skew. The election came. He won in the closest race in New York history. But notice that a random group of 120 13-year-olds had produced more accurate information. The math in the statistical processing is hardly daunting for a fifth grader. You know, so why aren't the 70 million captive school children involved in, if nothing else, data gathering? Since obviously it's a crucial part of uh, commerce. You know, opinion, well, there must be a reason they're not used that way, nor do they hear about statistical sampling until they're in college, for the most part. How, why not? According to Alfred North Whitehead, one of the major mathematicians of the 20th century, other than addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division, the only crucial piece of math for everyone to learn is statistical sampling predictions because the society, the economy is organized around those things. The politics is organized around those things. He said that in Aims of Education, which I think was published in the mid-1940s, well, you know, 60 years have gone by, and where, where is it? He's hardly a radical. While we recognize there might not be an easy way to accomplish anything of great value, we certainly do know what makes learning hard. Operating under compulsion, sitting still and waiting for instructions, letting authorities determine your intellectual value. School encourages us to seek easy ways, shortcuts, and half measures, all as means of circumventing pain and boredom. However, we don't need an easy way to learn. In his answer to Rich, John swaps the word easy for the word graceful. He explains that learning becomes increasingly graceful with the accumulation of self-knowledge, meaningful experience, and comfort with oneself. Back in 1991, John explained it as, I'm really trying to hand them back their lives and make myself available to them as a resource. His revolutionary curriculum, largely built around independent study and out-of-school apprenticeships, encouraged students to create real-life experiences where they could teach and test themselves. It challenged these young people to discover unguided settings with novel problems to solve. It fostered motivation, perseverance, courage, and dignity. So to fully answer the question about real education, we ultimately have to move beyond John Taylor Gatto, the educator. We have to look at his students. Real education is intrinsically motivated, self-directed learning and living. Classrooms of the Heart is filled with examples of increasingly confident, self-reliant, 
and self-directed young adults who all seemed eager to turn around and teach that lesson to others. For me, there's still something bittersweet about that video of John and his eighth grade students. When it was shot, edited, and released, I was in eighth grade myself. At that point, I was still more than 15 years away from learning many of the important truths about my schooling, from discovering the essentials of self-knowledge and personal growth, and from having any conception of the difference between compulsory schooling and a meaningful education. I rode a bus and filled out worksheets, and there wasn't a John Taylor Gatto in sight. And with his purposeful and courageous life in mind, I have pledged to help more young people encounter and embrace his message as soon as possible. And I'm endlessly grateful for that opportunity, which John Taylor Gatto also helped to create. Before we wrap up, I just want to say that video at the very beginning of the show, ran about six and a half minutes, is from a YouTube channel called 44 Connected, and it's called John Taylor Gatto, The Purpose of Schooling. And I saw, I mean, I've seen that video before, but it came back to my attention because a School Sucks listener and a young man, man in his early 20s, who I had the pleasure of meeting last year and I've hung out with him a few times since. His name's Danny McCarthy. Danny posted that video on Facebook with the following message. Where one dies, a thousand are allowed to rise. Tagged Rich Fratzel, Drew Sample, Brett Minot, Thaddeus Russell, Alani Marie, Lisa Arbacheski, Phil Serdum, Seth Sebastian Allen Baylor, Ilana Cornell, Kevin Cole, and C.J. Kilmer. So to be included with Lisa and Kevin Cole, who've done so much for John Taylor Gatto, I mean, I never got to meet John Taylor Gatto. Lisa, Rich, Kevin... They were all involved in his life, and they've done so much great work to preserve and amplify his message. So the fact that Danny, this young man who, as you might have realized from hearing him, has a kind of genius, and it's one that school seldom recognizes and never appreciates, that he discovered this work, and he put my name with names like Lisa and Kevin Uh, That means a lot to me. So I thought I would put that video at the beginning of the show because out of everything that Danny could have shared, he chose that. So that was impactful for him. So I thought I would include it here. The other kind of production note before we wrap up, I searched for a long time, an abnormally long time, even for me, for the right music for a memorial like this. And I never found it. But when I was like, I don't know, 11 degrees of separation away from what I started looking for, I came across the song that you're going to hear. And even though it wasn't the right song in its lyrics or its themes, the performance itself was the perfect piece of music. The group is called the Barton Hills Choir. It's an elementary school choir comprised of third, fourth, fifth, and sixth graders. And the choir director, Gavin Tabone, creates opportunities for these youngsters who have this passion for music to collaborate with professional musicians. And I found this video of the choir doing this really moving performance that made me very sentimental for a number of reasons. One reason, it was the first song I ever heard by a band that would go on to become one of my favorites, a band that I was actually introduced to by my favorite secondary school teacher interestingly enough, who actually used to lend me bootlegged tapes of their concerts. 
And I knew it was the right choice for two reasons. Number one, giving kids access to people in the real world who are already successful doing things that these kids are interested in. And they're collaborating and producing something together. And number two, it can be really encouraging and even quite heartwarming to see young people celebrating and carrying on the great works of people who have passed and finding new ways to project that work into the future. Thanks for listening, everybody, and take care. What gives me hope in spite of this repressive system is that I see the green shoots of human possibility coming up everywhere in Huntington, West Virginia, where no one ever ate off a tablecloth or in Palo Alto. And people are taking back the direction of their own lives. And what, after all, do you have? It's to write your own script is the it's just the highest It's got to be the highest goal of a human life, writing your own script. Must be getting early. Must be running late. Paid by number one in scale. Dawn is breaking everywhere. But I can't reverse the Draw the curtains, I don't care. It's all
the path of education beyond the immediate lo- locale you're in unless you know yourself. You will have proclivities. You'll have lenses. Some of them are built in biologically, many of them by your early training. And n- no major philosopher in human history, there are no exceptions, who think, uh, think about the, the training of the young don't come to this conclusion way back, probably way before Plato, but he's very clear on it, and Aristotle's clear on it, and, and Hegel's clear on it. Self-knowledge is where it's at. Know what you're capable of, know what your boundaries are, and then your education comes in enlarging those boundaries. And as you do, you get freer and freer. And before we part ways today, if what you just heard is building your interest in helping us gain and maintain presence and continue to build the legacy of the School Sucks Project, you can become a supporting member of our community. There are links in the show notes, but the easiest and most options-filled way is to become a patron. It is patreon.com slash school sucks. We have several tiers of membership but what we do here at School Sucks, value for value exchange, I first heard that term on another podcast I listened to called No Agenda, where people get value from the show, and then they return value to the people who do the hard work of creating the show. What we've developed at School Sucks, and I'm very proud of this, is the value for value and guess what more value exchange has that extra step in it. And what that is, is this. Most of our great work at this point is archived, and we also create content exclusively for our supporters. So when you send me the most important signal that I can receive that you find this show valuable, we exchange value. And then I give you access to a whole bunch of additional content, including a long list of educational archives that I believe is worth your time and attention. Also for this specific Essential School Sucks endeavor, we have partnered with Praxis after I think I probably said Praxis on the show and praised their work, I don't know, 500 times since first hearing about it seven years ago. But in short, Praxis is an alternative to the tracks we are put on headed towards college at a very, very young age 
college for too many uh, thoughtful, entrepreneurial, and ambitious young people is becoming an enormous opportunity cost. And Praxis was the first really viable alternative I ever encountered. So linked in the show notes for this episode and right at the top of the homepage for schoolsocksproject.com, you can learn how or how your teen can skip college. And now a man who will certainly emerge from the Essential School Sucks collection as one of its all-stars, Isaac Morehouse. Isaac is the founder of Praxis, has a free book after helping hundreds of young adults succeed in the professional and entrepreneurial world without college. They're sharing some of their philosophy and strategies for doing that. So you can get the book for free. It's linked in the show notes and right at the homepage, schoolsucksproject.com. All right, see you soon.